0: What is it that you want from your Lord? Why is it that you walk with Jesus? Why is it that you believe into Jesus the Christ? Why is it that you obey God the Father and even the promptings of the Holy Spirit? What motivates you in your walk with God? Is it money? Is it healing? Is it power? Is it miracles? Is it a platform? Is it leadership? Is it influence? What exactly is your motivation for walking with God? Well, I just ask that as a hypothetical because I want to bring it to the other side. What is God's motivation for knowing you and loving you and saving you? What is God's motivation? What is his dream and his desire for reaching out to you and filling you with his Holy Spirit and endowing you with grace and endowing you with Holy Spirit power and giftings? And why is God interested in you? Surely you have a motivation for God in your life. Maybe you're afraid of torture and so you believe that maybe having God in your corner, one day maybe you'll go to heaven. Okay, we all have... Motivations. Maybe some of us are on target and maybe some of us are just a little bit off. But God also has a motivation for knowing you. And in this message, I want to speak a little bit from God's perspective. Why did God create you? Why is God interested in your life? And perhaps if He brings breakthrough in your life, is is that it? Breakthrough just for the sake of breakthrough? Or is the breakthrough For yet another agenda. Why is God healing you? Why is God raising you up? Is it it just for the platform? Is it just for the influence? Or is it a step towards perhaps a deeper burden and ache and yearning in God? Why is God interested in your life? The bottom line of this message is that God is interested in you so that through you He can find a conduit to express Himself into this earth. That through your person and through your life, through your personality and through all that pertains to your life, God wants to use you as a vessel to show forth His glory. His image, in a nutshell, when people come in contact with you, they will know something of God. You are here, at least from God's perspective, to shine something, to express something, and and to be a conduit for the beauty of God. So yes, you have your agenda maybe, but certainly God has His agenda and this message is all about God's agenda for knowing you, loving you, walking with you. And it is to express Himself through your person. I want to go back to the vision of God for this planet and in a way, the vision of God that I want to relate to you, I trust will in a way be an answer, not only for your personal life, but also potentially for the day and age in which you and I live. If you can imagine on the screen here, as I draw this line, I want you to imagine with me two realms. The realm of God, if you will, and the realm of man, if you will. And I want to be simplistic with you and not entirely specific. So just bear with me a little bit in imagination as I set up the scene for you. The answer to you and I's life, and the answer for our culture, and the answer for the day and age, is the economy of God. And when I say the economy of God, I'll explain that as we go along. But you know, you and I are trying to fix the problems of this day and age. But God already has an answer for this day and age. And so at Legacy, I would love to spend the vast majority of my time giving you God's vision, God's purpose, God's heart for this realm we call time and space. Because ever since eternity passed, God has been burdened for this particular realm. In fact, He created the realm of time and and space. And he has a vested interest in this realm of time and space. So look back here at the screen for just a minute. And again, use your imagination if you can. Uh, we would say this is the above realm. This is the below realm. Let's call this realm up here, just in simple terms, let's call it the spiritual uh, realm. We call this the natural Realm. We know that God's realm is timeless. God's realm you might call the eternal realm. Uh, It's the realm without beginning, it's the realm without end. There's no height, no depth, there's no dimension. Uh, There's no the there's no laws of physics and science that are operative in the realm of God. By and large, the realm in which God operates, this invisible a realm, By and large, it's mystical from my perspective. Can you agree with me on that? Now, you and I live in this realm called time and space. We had a uh, very much a beginning. Our realm, according to the Scriptures, very much will have an ending, a conclusion, a consummation. Ever since day one, God has been wanting to work His economy as it is in the spiritual realm as it is in the above realm. We can call it the supernatural. So this is the natural, and this is the above the natural realm. God has had a purpose. God has had a will. God has had a heart's desire. God has had what we might call a burden or an ache within Him. We don't know how He got this ache, this burden. But somehow, in God's burden, He created a realm called time and space. And the Scriptures actually tells us what He wants to accomplish in the realm of time and space. Again, use your imagination. This table here in our room together, imagine this as the realm of time and space. The realm of matter. God, if you will, lives outside of this realm. Can you agree with me? Uh, God's not before it. He's not really under it. He's not above it or behind it. I can't explain God to you, so that's why I just use a little bit of holy imagination. But God is just all around this realm, if you will. I just heard something here. <laughs> Trying to demonstrate that. But I want you to hear carefully that which was the burden of God will be the agenda of God in time and space. God will not in the eternal realm here have a burden and an agenda exclusively for this realm and then you guys down there on planet Earth, you sort of do your own thing. Can you follow with me? What comes out of God will be a reflection of God. So in the mind of God, in the burden of God, and in the heart of God, He wants somehow the economy and the way it is in this realm. He wanted to be mirrored within the physical and practical and tangible realm of time and space. Somehow, in a very mysterious way, God wants this visible realm to be a testimony of the invisible. He wants the visible to be a reflection in some way of the invisible. I don't understand exactly why, but the scriptures reveal it just as a fact. As it is in this realm, the Father would love for it to be in this realm also. So much so that there is a harmony and an agreement and there's a congruency in the visible realm with the invisible realm. So, whatever is in God's heart, We call the burden of God, the purposes of God, we call that God's economy. We'll explain that to you in just a little bit. But God's economy is to work something of Himself into the realm of time and space. And this is the eternal plan of God. It has a lot of micro-nuances, but the big picture is that God in His invisible, eternal capacity, wants something on this earth to represent Him, to speak for Him, to live for Him, to, let's say, rule and reign the way He governs and rules and stewards the eternal realms God wants a representative in this realm to act on His behalf, to speak for Him, to love for Him, to heal for Him, to minister, to serve. So much so that the man or the woman He places in this earth, when you see the good works of this man and this woman, you would somehow touch something of the realms unseen. Can you follow with me? So that is a very big picture, and I'm painting with broad brush strokes, is God wants a visible realm, and particularly the realm of planet Earth, to mirror something of the realm of the Spirit. And God said, this is now after the Lord had rearranged time and space here on this earth and the Spirit had now brought some purpose and some definition to all of this. But the Lord, in a way, would say it is still not enough. A horse is not the testimony of God. A a cow is, is not the full testimony of God. A monkey, as awesome as that thing is, it's not the testimony of God. So yes, now we have this creation that really shines and is beautiful. I can just imagine what it looked like. And it's as though God says, this is not enough. Creation is beautiful. It declares the glory of God. It speaks of the handiwork of God. But it's as though God is like, "Ah, something's missing. And God said, I want to make a man. So let us make a man. And in that man, we would intonate in the upcoming verses man and woman but let's make a man and then here comes the description let's make a man in our image so right there I can deduce that the cow is not the image of God the butterfly, the bee, the lion. Oh, it may speak something for God, but it is not a completed image of God until God makes a man and a woman. I want to make a man, and I want him to be in my image and according to my likeness. And I want this man to have dominion Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the cattle and over all of the earth and over everything that creeps upon this earth. Beloved, there's the economy of man. There's the economy of God. Man is to function in this earth as the image of God. Man is to function as the visible expression of the invisible of God. That's man's economy. That's man's destiny. First and foremost is to shine something, express something of God. So much so that as this creation beholds this man, something of God is known. So God then will use a man to express Him, not necessarily the horse, the man. So we would then see throughout the Scriptures, God's supreme interest is in working with a man and with a woman. By His Spirit, He will use this man and this woman then to speak for Him. Pretty simple, right? But you and I know that... Man fell, and man lost that image of God. And we know that man also fell from the dominion God gave him. It says here over and over again in Genesis, God gave this man authority. I want you to rule and to reign, and I want you to bear fruit. And the man Adam and Huva in Hebrew, we call them Adam and Eve, but they, they lost the testimony of God. And through the succeeding generations, the, the image of God began to dissipate in man, and man began to take up ego and self, so that man now be, began to express his own interest, his own will, and, and his own cleverness, and his own idolatries, and his own greeds. And So man begins to be less of an expression of an unseen realm and more of an expression of his own lust. So now when I see a man, I say, oh, greedy. Now when I see a man, I say, oh, murderer. So man is no longer really the image and the beauty of God. Man now begins to live this derogatory, inferior life that's just below the burden of God. So the economy of God was for a testimony in man. But now man becomes a testimony of of his own self. And he builds his own cities. And he pursues his own interests. And he builds his own tower of Babel. And his own empire. And his own name. So that I am now known. So when you see me, you see success. And you see power. And you see victory. And whatever I want you to see. So... God begins a work. And throughout the biblical record, God will handpick certain people and begin a work in them so that they are raised up again to express in this realm something for God. If we go through the biblical record, you see that Adam was the first man to express something of God. Adam falls. Then there's the man Abel. He comes and he worships God with a sacrifice. And he, of course, is murdered. Then there's a man by the name of Enoch. He walks with God. And he bears this testimony that he's a a walker with God. Then there is this pitiful condition in Genesis 6 where Every thought and every intention of man's heart was evil continuously before the Lord. And man fully lost the testimony of God. So God handpicks another man by the name of Noah. And God begins to work within this man through the Spirit of God. And and this man, Noah, finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he was a righteous man. And God works in him his testimony. And so Noah in a way, stands contrary to the age in which he lives. He speaks for God. After Noah, um, there's the Tower of Babel again, where man wants to build his own name and acclaim and fame. But God calls out another man by the name of Abram. And God begins to work in this man his testimony. And He takes this man on an enormous journey So that this man becomes known as the friend of God. And when you see Abraham, you you discover something about God. Abraham becomes the visibility of God on earth, so to speak. Is everybody with me? Abraham has a child by the name of Isaac. Then Isaac again has two children. And God picks one of those children to, to begin to work with this man called Jacob. And, and Jacob has the testimony of the flesh. Jacob is, is a man for his own purposes and striving and conniving. And God, by His Spirit, reaches out from the heavens and begins to work within this man his purposes, his economy, so that He changes this man into the name Israel, and this man then becomes somehow a testimony of God. Jacob. Jacob then again has all of these sons. And God would then pick out a son by the name of Joseph. And Joseph would go through this horrendous trial when everybody else has lost the testimony of God. And you can go read the account of all of the brothers of Joseph. They were all for their own ego. But God picks out the man, Joseph, and begins to work his image and his recovery of God's purposes in this man. And eventually, you know the story, Joseph comes forth as a man who represents God on earth. A man who would speak for God and show the mercy of God and somehow the grace of God to his brothers. God had found His man. After that, you know the 400-year story where the Israelites again are submitted to slavery and and they lose the image of God. They lose the testimony of God and they they have this testimony of slaves, this misfit people group. Then God raises up another man by the name of Moses. God goes through a big process to, to, to work His economy in this man, to work His purposes into this man, God's mind into this man, God's heart into this man. And at age 80, this man comes and speaks for something for God. And he says, let my people go. That was really the burden of God. And so now he speaks on this earth as it is the burden of God in realms unseen. So Moses then delivers this motley crew of people, the slave people. Then God begins a work with this people, and He introduces them to a kind of worship and a law and and, and a rhythm with God. So this people that were a slave people now become a priestly people, so much so that all the surrounding tribes, they would say, ah, there's the people of God. There's the people that belong to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ooh, we should not mess with these folk. God is with them. They bore the testimony of God. They bore something of the image of God. They lived for God, did a kind of a worship for God, had a kind of a tent for God. They were a set-apart people. It wasn't long before most of those folk fell from the image of God again, fell from the testimony of God again. But God had a man by the name of Joshua and his sidekick uh, Caleb. When the nation lost faith in God, there was a man again who stood against that. A man who stood out like a sore thumb. No, we can do this. We can go into this good land. Let's take the enemy right now because God is with us. And they spoke for God. And they had the courage of God. The heart of God was transplanted into Joshua and Caleb. The entire nation missed out. But one man went into the good land, Joshua and Caleb, and the new generation. Well, they were settling into that land, and it wasn't long before this new generation, who once had the glorious testimony of God, lost it again because of idolatry. That is, I want this. I think we should do it this way. And there was an incongruency between the, the nation again, and the heart of God. But then God raised up a judge, let's say Deborah, let's say Gideon. Who were these judges? They, They were just men and women who said, yes Lord, here am I for your testimony. Here am I for your image. And Deborah, she would defeat the Canaanites and you know Gideon, the, the Midianites, and you know, eventually Samson would, would defeat some of the, the Philistines. And then there comes this time when God raises up this man by the name of Samuel. Samuel would speak for God, he would minister the testimony of God to a nation who then again became lukewarm, they lost the image of God to idolatry and the culture. And the tribalism of the day. God raises up Samuel. But the nation says, no, we want a king. So they pick Saul. Somebody who is like them. Somebody who can speak for them. Somebody with ego and ambition. Somebody with self-interest. And the Jewish people at that time lose the image of God again. And God said, no. I'm going to work. I want a man who speaks for me, who lives for me, a man after my own heart. God raises up David. I can go on and on. I think you see the pattern. The Bible is a rather repetitive book. Different stories, same theme. There is God with a burden for a testimony in this earth. But then every time God in a way gains a man, there is a satanic onslaught against that man or that people, to to snuff out the image of God, to to, to squash it, to derail it, and and to cause these two railroad tracks to to, to separate so that God's way is here and man again goes this way. But no matter how many times the culture tries to snuff out God, he raises up a man or a woman. Amen. Amen! So God raises up David. David builds this empire, um... And with his son, Solomon, they have the testimony of the glory of God on earth. They build a house for God. The glory of God comes. People fall all over the place. They are so touched with the presence of God. It wasn't long after that when the nation fell from the image of God. So God says, I can't have this. He sends prophets. And what is a prophet? A prophet is a man in in, in time and in space who somehow opens himself up to the burden of God. And you will often hear the prophets say, the burden of the Lord, the word of the Lord came to so and so. And they were weighted down with the grief of God, the anger of God, the justice of God. And those prophets, even though they were just a shepherd like Amos or They somehow got tuned in and calibrated to a burden in another realm, the realm of God. Is everybody with me? So no matter how much Satan tries to fall man, derail man, God always has a man or a woman. Yay, God! I love it! the prophets would then speak for God. They would cry for God. They would rebuke for God, challenge people's idolatries. Why? So that it is on this earth again as it is in the heavens, so that there is a harmony with the will of God above and below. You know the story how the prophets could break through the stiff-necked, hard hearts of the people only so much before there was this 400-year period where God just had no man. Prior to the coming of Christ, there was a 400-year gap in your Bible between Malachi and Matthew. And there was a lot of world events happening at that time, but as it were, there was not a man or a woman in 400 years who spoke for God. It's kind of like... Back in the day of Egypt, for 400 years, they were slaves before Moses came along who would bear the testimony of God. So we have that situation again. And by now, at the time of Christ, there are a lot of men dressed a certain way. Very scholarly. Men who have laws and ordinances all for the love of God for the purposes of God. We have in the New Testament, when we open up the pages, a religion who from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same sun is all about the worship of God. By the time that man gets up, he starts praying. He starts fasting. He he starts singing. He starts sacrificing. And from the morning to the evening and everything in between, his whole life is scripted around God. He prays, He tithes, He labors in spiritual matters. Bearing the testimony of God? Then there comes this wild man, this rebel, this renegade, this... We don't know what to call this man. A misfit? Maybe some of you can identify with that. I can John the baptizer, he comes and he speaks to these people who supposedly have the testimony of God, and he says to them, you are whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but you're really religious. You're not giving the testimony of God, you're giving the testimony of slavery, religious slavery. You are limiting people from entering into the kingdom of God. You are limiting people from being free as God's people. You may say prayers, but you really are only praying to yourself. You script your own religion. It's got nothing to do... And the people looked at those religion folk all day long and thought, Whoa, now there's a woman of God. Or maybe there's a man of God. Whoa, if ever I can be close to God, I should be like Him. And then the baptizer comes and he says, you are sons of snakes. You are serpents. And that was a clear description. Sorry. (laughs) When he calls them sons of snakes, everybody knew he was associating them with Satan. The satanic. Jesus would even come in John 8 later, and he would say to the folk of that day, you are of your father, the devil. But they thought they were bearing the testimony of God, the image of God. Jesus said, you've got nothing to do with God. There is no speaking of God in you. There's no reality of God in you. You don't have the burden of God. You're a whitewashed tomb, and yet inside you are dead and dry and out of touch with the heavens. Of course, they kill the baptizer, as they always do, the people who bear the image of God. That's why many of us don't want to bear the image of God, because it's going to cost you your life. They put the baptist to death. Then there comes a new man. And I want to tell you a little bit about this new man. The Lord spoke to Moses and He said to him, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and say this to them. This is the way that you will bless the children of Israel. You shall say to him, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord, notice this, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. So much so, that priest would stand there and he would say that priestly blessing. And notice the first thing, God wants to bless you. But how is he going to bless you? By taking his countenance, his image, his face, and putting it on you. This is God's economy, is that man would reflect God. So when I see you, I see something of God. And even here in the priestly blessing, there it is. May God make His face shine upon you and and, and give you grace. May He lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. So all throughout the Scriptures, there is this theme with this man, this Adam, and his woman, that God's face would be upon them. So we come to the time of Jesus. God's face was not upon those religious people, even though every day they would bless the people. For them it became a mantra, a kind of a slogan, a kind of just sort of a positive thinking maybe. But then one day, there came a man who had the face of God on him again. His name was Jesus the Christ. I want to tell you a little bit about this man. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Notice verse 14. And this word became flesh. There's a big context here that's besides the point right now. But he starts off John's Gospel by, by speaking a little bit about this mystical Word of God, who was in the beginning of God, who created all things, who Himself is God. And the first few verses there in John are highly mystical, and he speaks of a realm and a, a, a place that's, that's outside of the time dimension. And then John says, this Word, this Logos, this, this mystical... Uh, came in to our world. This Word became flesh. This Word became human. And then He says, it tabernacled among us, or your Bible may say it dwelt among us. The, The Greek there is the implication of a tabernacle, like a tent. He came and He made a tent among us. Matthew would call Him Emmanuel, God with us. John would say He's the tabernacle of God with us. The tabernacle in the Old Testament represented a tent where God's presence dwelt inside of that tent. And now we see that in Jesus, the body became the tent. Man's body is the tent. And He says, oh, God birthed Himself into a man's body. And that man now is Jesus the Christ. So the Word becomes flesh. He dwells among us. And then I want you to notice carefully in your Bible to this glorious description. John is stating the fact that God became a man. But then he takes a little bit of a rabbit trail and he tells you his impression of this man. You might see in parentheses in your Bible, there is this little insert where John just gives a little bit of his definition of this man. And he says, this man who dwelt among us, we beheld his glory. We saw his shining. We saw him radiating. We saw him emanating. Like something came out of this man. Is everybody with me? And then notice here the description. When we saw his glory, and it was the glory of the only begotten from the Father. This man showed us something of God the Father. If you flip the page and you look also at the next verse, verse 18. He continues this little bit of a observation. He says in verse 18, nobody has ever seen God. See, God lives in the invisible realm. Amen? Okay, thank you. No one has ever seen God, but this only begotten Son, this Jesus figure who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. He has declared Him. So beloved, God here in the New Testament finds a man again through His own incarnation. And notice the description that is given of Jesus. There's not a lot of description initially given of His power, of His intellect, how wise He is, how clever He is, how articulate He is. John gives none of that description. The first thing he almost wants you to know is like, when we saw this man, it's like we saw something of the Father. This man put God on display. This man almost had the face of God on him. This man was in the image of God. After all, he was God. But here comes a man who fully lives out now the grand economy of God, the grand heart and burden of God. Go quickly with me to John chapter 12, and uh, pick up in verse 44. But Jesus cried out and said that he who believes into me does not believe into me, but actually into the one who sent me. He is such a representative, listen, that when you put your trust in this visible man, Jesus the Christ, it's like you're putting your trust in a realm, in a God, beyond what you see. Therefore, He's the extension of the heavenly realm. When you touch Him, it's as though you touch God. It's as though when you hear Him, you hear something of God. This man is a kind of a conduit to the unseen God. He's an expression of God, so when he expresses God, it's as though you see God. Same concept as in Genesis. Look at verse 45. He who beholds me, beholds the one who sent me. Wow. It's like when you see me, you see God. Yeah? Is right with me? So here is a man who is finally expressing God. He's interpreting God. He's showing forth God. He's shining something for God. And then he even says, the words that I speak, they belong to God. The way that I live, it's of God. The judgment that I give, that's of God. If you see me, you've seen my Father. Beloved, that is the statement Adam and Eve should have made in the garden. That's the way they were meant to live. When you see Adam, you see God. But in all the succeeding generations, we've, we, we kept on failing. But God kept on wooing another man, wooing another woman. we can talk about that process after the break. And ultimately then, here comes this man of all men. And he speaks really the heartbeat of God. What is God's heart? That it would be in your life and in your reflection as it is in the heavenlies. John chapter 14 and verse 9. If you pick up in verse 7, Jesus said, Philip, if you had uh, known me, you would have known my father. And henceforth, you know him and you've seen him. That is entirely in context to, Philip, the Father is here with you. Although you can't see the Father, I am the visible display of the Father. I'm the image of God. I'm the face of God. If you know me, and you know my heart, you know what the heart of the Father is. Philip said to him, Lord, um, help us a little bit here. Can you just show us the Father? Please show us the, the Father up there. Please, please unveil who this heavenly Father is. Jesus says to him, uh, Philip, have I been with you so long a time, and yet you don't know me? And it's like he's speaking for God. It's like the Father was in the skin of Jesus Christ. So like, Hey, the Father has been with you all this time. Really? Yeah, through my living and speaking, you see the heart of God. You don't see, listen carefully. When we say man is in the image of God, man is not in the form of God. None of us know the form of God. The best definition we have of the form of God is in John 4: God is spirit. In 1 John, towards the end of your Bible, he says, God is light. And God is eternal. There's no form to God as much as we can understand in the human IQ. So when we say that we're in the image of God, we're not in the form of God. God doesn't have a beard, big fat belly, bag of presents. That's the human perception. So when Jesus says, you've seen me, what did you see in Christ? You saw the Father's burden. You saw the Father's way. You saw the Father's method and the will of God and the purpose of God. You saw the Father's nature through the man. That's the image of God. Is everybody with me? Philip, I've been with you for so long and yet you've not known me? He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So many of you have so many times said, "Like, oh God, show yourself to me. Even Jesus would say, how can He show Himself? God shows Himself into this realm through man. I too want God to just show up. God, if You really love me, would You just kind of like show up? and, and, And He shows up probably mostly through man. Now, if some bird flies across the sky and some cloud formation lines up nicely, yeah, that's the image of God. That's the speaking of God. Maybe that's... But ever since day one, creation cannot fully speak for God. Creation cannot address the culture and the circumstance. Man is supposed to do that. And the only way that you and I will bear the testimony of God in this earth is if the Spirit of God can gain a man. And of course, he gained this man, Christ. Colossians chapter 1, who speaks so beautifully and loftily of the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, look at Colossians 1 and verse 15. It's a quick little description. He says, This Jesus, this Son of God, this Emmanuel, this Jew, he was the image of the invisible God. That word image is you and I's English word, icon. Akon from the Greek, icon in English. You know, when you see an icon, it it reminds you of something. This Jesus is the icon of God. He is the expression of God. He fulfills the economy of God. Love it. Last little verse before we conclude. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer starts off with a description of Christ because the entire letter revolves around this magnificent person. And uh, in verse 3, he tries to give a description of this marvelous Son of God. And instead of saying, this man spoke so good, this man had the greatest stories, this man, oh, his wisdom, oh, his power... The gospel writers would often refer to this man in his glory and in the way he would express God. This is what intrigued the writers the most. This man shone for God. And uh, we presume the Apostle Paul here writing says exactly the same thing again. In verse 3, this man is the radiance of the glory of God. This man is the emanating light of God. You might say, this man is the expression of God. This man gives definition to God. He clears up God for people. He's the glory of God. Glory, we'll teach you a little bit later, uh, has two definitions. But this man has the weight of God in his being. And this man radiates that weight. Have you ever been around people who had weight in their soul and, and there's, there's a heaviness and there's a conviction in their soul and it's like you take on that weight and you're impacted by that weight? Yeah? This is what the word glory would mean. This man was weighted down with the substance of God and he made people weighty with God. My Bible would say here, he was the effulgence of God, He, like that light bulb. That light bulb is is, is giving off a radiance, a glow, a shining. And so I can see the definition in this room because of that light bulb, so to speak. What the writer here is saying is like, "I, I fully now get what God is about because I saw a man. And here's the satanic crucifying this man. And the apostles come forth and they would shine for God. We will look at their lives a little bit. But there is this battle then from Genesis all the way to the end of the age between God having an expression in this earth and Satan snuffing it out. Then God wants to raise up an expression. Then Satan attacks it. And there is your battle. There is your spiritual warfare. Can, it's got nothing to do with demons. All they want to do is snuff out the expression of God, the glowing of God, the the, the clarity of God, the definition of God through you. And so they kill the apostles. But every time they kill a man or a woman of God, God pops up another man or a woman. And another woman says, yes. And another man says, yes. And God does a work within them. (laughs) And over time, they speak for God. They live for God. They bear the fruit and the authority and dominion of God. Glory to God. Then they get killed. That's why I don't encourage you all to live for the Lord. You're going to die. But this message is only for those who really want to get with God's economy. Then they kill the image of God again. God creates the heavens and the earth, and then their satanic onslaught make it waste. Then God pops up a man, and then there's the devil. Oh, I just eat this apple, which really it was a mango. It was not an apple. You know that. I mean, why would you give away a kingdom for an apple? A Granny Smith? Seriously? We're in this pickle because of a Granny Smith. <laughs> Now, a mango I can understand. I can totally get that. But then God raises up His man. There's Noah. There's His man Abraham, etc., etc., etc. And all throughout the church age, God always raises up a man or a woman. My closing question to you, as we just tippy-toe into this, Will my generation have no testimony of the authentic God? Or will we have a testimony of religion, show, entertainment, pop psychology, opinions? And, like whose testimony is being formed in you? Your parents' testimony? Your professor's testimony? The age's test You better believe... You are a conduit for some kind of testimony. You're going to radiate something. You're going to give off something. And there then is the battle. Will God gain His face in you, His expression upon you and through you, or will Satan, the world, culture prevail? The answer to the difficult age in which we live is, it's not a financial answer initially, political issue initially. The issue at, at stake is the image of God in you. And that's the answer to our age is you making God known. And some of you will make the wisdom of God known to solve this problem. Some of you will make God's mercy known by forgiving. Some of you will make God's justice known by righteousness. We will all make God known in some capacity to bear authority in that capacity and to bear fruit in in, in that realm. But you're at Legacy School of Discipleship. Not to become a scholar or some doer of religious works or we're going to introduce you to no doing for God or no more works. Uh, the big burden of God is to have his man at school, at the office. Wherever you and I go and wherever we put our hand to a plow, it's not for a paycheck or an award on the wall. Whatever college you go to, it's really not for a degree. It's so that God can have a man at that campus. You're just there in a way, incognito, earning the degree, but you're supposed to overtly just be a man of God there. But I'm too young to be a man of God. No, you're not. The kingdom of God even belongs to children. Children can speak and act and emanate something of God. Why not us in our 20s? Who here wants to sign up for the image of God to be restored in you? Whatever that looks like. That's why you're here. You're not here to figure out the end times. Figure out a business plan. Find a spouse. You're not here for the American dream. You're at my school for such a time as this for the main thing, and it's the recovery of God's image in you.